morning, guys. Great to see you. Uh, do me a favor, get your Bible. I'll turn with me to James chapter 4. Uh, so either your Bible on your app or your Bible on a chair in front of you or something like that. But James chapter 4, 7 through 17. I know I already didn't introduce myself, but uh, my name is Pastor Sean. I'm the senior pastor of Coastal. And one of the things I try to do in the summer times is is rotate around our different campuses and ask the uh, lead campus pastor if I can preach. And Andrew was kind, Pastor Andrew was kind of let me preach. And so I know you're disappointed this morning that you're stuck with me instead of him. Uh, but man, what a joy to worship with you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. And, uh, and so what we're going to meditate our way through the word of God this morning. I'm really, really excited. So I hope you'll take some notes. Uh, you've got a note sheet on your bulletin or you can take notes on your app and the app actually keeps those notes for you and uh, really want to be you to be encouraged this morning. We're going to be talking about uh, humility, which is an odd thing to think about. Uh, it's not a thing that's highlighted in our culture. And oftentimes we don't even know what to do with the word humility. Quite frankly, we're not sure how that's lived out on the day to day. And James gets really, really practical about that. So uh, I hope that it encourages you. I, a couple weeks ago, we Coastal hosted a, a conference for pastors uh, called the Refuel Conference. Actually, I was supposed to make an announcement, so let me back up there too and just interrupt my story. Uh, tonight, student ministry is going to be on site and not a pool party. Uh, I think the fear was is that Pastor Sean was going to show up in his bathing suit, so they adjusted rather quickly and brought it here. Uh, so students, you're going to be here at 5 o'clock, not at the pool party. So back to the story, all right? So we were hosting a conference for uh, pastors called Refuel, and the night before the conference, we had a dinner out. So all the guys that were teaching and all the pastors at Coastal that were helping, uh, we had a dinner out. And at Yorktown, uh, the pastor that runs uh, kind of the Yorktown campus for me uh, is a guy by the name of Cliff Bowen, Pastor Cliff. Now, uh, he, we, he went through our pastoral training and we ordained him about a year ago. But what a lot of people that are around part of Coastal don't know is that Cliff Bowen spent a large part of his career as the chief of police uh, in the community I live in called Pocosin. And so I got the retired chief of police. He's now a pastor on our campus. He's leading our Yorktown campus, doing an incredible job. And so we're at this dinner and Cliff Bowen, the pastor, begins to tell all these amazing police stories to these pastors. I mean, it's one amazing story after the next. High-speed car chases, shootouts, delivering babies in a car with an emergency call. I mean, it's going on and on. And as he's telling these stories, and I realize that he's now a pastor at Coastal, and it begins to dawn on me that he can do my job, but I can't do his job, right? And I begin to grow intimidated. And, you know, it's just one amazing story after the next. And so I'm insecure, I'm intimidated. And so I pipe in with this to try to one-up him. Have you ever been in a dinner, dinner party where someone's got to one-up your story? Like, you tell a great story, and they're like, that ain't nothing, you know? So that's what I did. Like he's, he gets done with the high-speed high car chase, and I'm like, that ain't nothing. All right? So um, I decided to go wild and crazy one week as a pastor. And normally when I'm doing sermon prep, I do three-point sermons. But one week I got a wild brain idea. I said, you know what? And I worked hard, and I developed a four-point sermon. That's how awesome my job is, right? And I want up to his crazy police stories. And a lot of times, all kidding aside, like a lot of times when we think about 
humility, we think about insignificant, right? Like humility means that I'm insignificant or unimportant. Yet in the gospel message, and last week we looked at this, we finished verse 6 of chapter 4, and chapter verse 6 of chapter 4 is really intimidating. James says that God opposes the proud. Now, the word for oppose is a, is a military term that says he's dressed for battle, right? So God is so opposed to, being, to people being proud that he dresses for war against us if our hearts are proud, right? Yet he gives grace to the humble. How many of you say, man, I would love to have the grace of God with me? How many of you would say that? I hope all of you would say that, me too, right? And so a key ingredient with, for the grace of God being with us in our journey through life is for us to have a heart posture of humility, right? And so my prayer for you as I was praying on the way over here is that you would indeed know the grace of God. And so uh, so I actually did develop a four-point sermon today, uh, going wild and crazy. And so here it is, point number one, all right? I think what James is saying in point number one is giving us an overview of the humility that we need to be saved, right? Or the humility of salvation. Now, what James doesn't do here, and so this is where having uh, understanding the overview of the book of James, that it's kind of the New Testament Proverbs, very practical. James is very, very practical. Uh, he's the half-brother of Jesus, you know. I mean, could you, could you even imagine growing up in the home of Jesus? Like, how horrible that would be to be a sibling. Like, you're constantly getting disciplined by your parents. They're like, why can't you just be like your brother, Jesus, you know? Like, he does everything right, you know, just how horrible that would be. So James kind of grew up that way, and he certainly knew and understood the gospel. But what he gives us here in our first point is what I would say is the heart posture of salvation. He doesn't necessarily explain the salvation story in Christ, right? And then I'm, that's kind of assumed that you know the person and the work of Christ. Now, let me just take a moment and talk about this because this is really, really important to your understanding of you being connected to your creator through, and if you're new to Coastal, we use this word, the gospel of Christ all the time. To understand the gospel of Christ, you have to understand the person and the work of Christ. I say that all the time, the person and the work of Christ. What is the person of Christ? The person of Christ is that he is the second person. How many are in the deacon training? And you got read that, you read that big book. Raise your hands, potential deacons. Hi, yeah, like they're ashamed to even do it. Like I've read this huge book, right? And we spend a lot of time on the person of Christ, right? That he is the second person of the Trinity and he is the God man. He is a hundred percent God. By the way, this is why the virgin birth of Jesus is essential to our understanding of who Christ is. In fact, we at Coastal, we, we won't even partner with ministries that deny the virgin birth of Jesus because it's essential to understanding his person, which is essential to understanding the gospel and his work for us, right? So he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the God-man. He's 100% God, and he's 100% man. He's the second Adam. He did what the first Adam failed to do. That's his person. And what is his work? He lived a perfect life. You know, a lot of times we talk about the gospel message of Christ, we forget about the, 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 uh, the life of Christ. 
it was essential that Jesus was perfect, that he kept the law of God perfectly. Why is that essential? Because when you receive Jesus into your life, the doctrine of justification teaches us that the perfect works of Christ get credited to your spiritual bank account, if you will, by grace alone, through faith alone, so that when you receive Christ, God in Christ now sees you in Christ as perfect. Isn't that amazing? Anybody here imperfect? No, just a couple of you. Okay, so if you're not sure, ask your spouse. Like, do I have it all together? They'll let you know for sure that you don't, okay? And so, no, we need the perfect works of Christ, right? So his life, his perfect life, and then his death, this is the work of Christ, he died a substitutionary death where he bore God's wrath for your sin and my sin on the cross. Now, a lot of times people kind of, we get in a holy week and we start meditating and thinking about Christ and his beating and his crucifixion and how brutal it is. And a lot of people say, man, that's so bloody. Like, why is God so bloody? We are to look at the cross of Christ. And every time, Christian, that you are tempted to sin, you need to remind your mind and your heart of the crucifixion of Christ and go, that is how much God hates my sin. We're to look at Christ and go, that's how much he hates it. And he bore God's wrath, the work of Christ. And then they laid his body in a grave. And three days later, he rose from the grave, Jesus Christ. And what did that do? That overcame the last enemy, which is death, 1 Corinthians 15. And it authenticated his claims as being the very son of God. And the Bible teaches that the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, if you're a Christian, now lives inside of you and will raise you from the dead. That's the hope of both abundant and eternal life. Isn't that great news, church? So that's the personal work of Christ. So James assumes that. And now James gives us the heart posture with which we need to be saved by the person and work of Christ. So here it is, James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Listen, I think James has given us, man, this is how we receive Christ. Letter A, right? We submit to God. The heart posture of receiving Christ is to submit to God's salvation plan. One of the things I say is is that to be a Christian, you have to repent of your sin. That means 180 degree turn. We have to believe. We have to have the head knowledge of the gospel that God sent his son to die in my place and rose again bodily from the grave. And I have to believe into it. That's what the gospel of John says. Or receive Christ into my life. We have to submit to God. We have to submit to his word. We have to submit to his will. We have to submit to his way. We have to submit to God's way of salvation. We live in a culture that tells us that all paths lead to God. You ready, church? That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, I would push so far as to say a Christian cannot affirm the teaching that all paths lead to God. The scriptures teach there is only one way to God. Amen? Anybody? It's John 14. What did Jesus say in John 14? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And then what's he say next? Anybody know? Nobody gets to come to God except through me. That's either true or Jesus is crazy. Amen? 
And I would propose to you that it's true, right? Acts 4, there's no other name given among men or why we must be saved. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. We have to, to receive the gospel, we have to be humble. We have to submit to God's word and God's wills and God's ways and God's way of salvation. Number two, or letter B, we got to draw near to God. We're invited to draw near to God. Listen, God is holy. The Bible tells us that nobody can be in God's presence, a sinner at least, or that we will be consumed. So if we're going to draw near to God, how are we going to draw near to God? We have to draw near to God in Christ, receiving the gospel. Listen, our God is relational. I love one of my favorite or relationship verses in the New Testament is Revelation 3.20. I love Revelation 3.20. It's at the end of uh, the letters that are written to all of the churches that God is correcting in Asia Minor in Revelation and encouraging them to walk afresh and anew with the Lord. And in Revelation 3.20 says this, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You want to know what I love about that language in that verse? I, as you can tell, love eating. Love eating, right? Like, I love a good meal. I never turn down a good meal, all right? And uh, and I love that verse, and here's why. And I want to tell you a little story around it to give you some handles. My wife, when I first met her, um, she used to babysit for the New York Mets. So how cool is that? So she was at Shea Stadium. She babysat for the Mets after the game. I'm first date with her and meeting her family. We go to Shea. We're in the tunnels afterwards. Here's all the national the Mets coming down to pick up their kids it was amazing and uh, and so one of the uh, people that she and my wife's family got to know was played third base for the New York Mets and eventually when he retired um, he was a coach of the Norfolk Tides when they were the Mets organization some of you in the old school remember that and so when he had an off day we would have him over for dinner right and uh, and so whenever he came over for dinner it was awesome we'd go out man we'd get you know, my wife would get these from a local market, get these special cut steaks, and she'd marinate them all day in her special sauce. You know, I don't know what it's called, but it was amazing. They'd be marinating all day. And then she would take sweet potatoes, and she would cut them up real thin, and she would, really, like, let them sit in this oil, and then, like, a little bit of brown sugar and garlic, and she would cook these things in homemade bread. And, and uh, man, that would cook all day in the house. It would just sound amazing. How do you, like, when we wrap this up so we can go out to dinner? All right, let's, let's go, all right? And then this guy, his name was Hojo, he would come over for dinner, and we would hang out with him, and his daughter used to, was our flower girl in our wedding, and we caught up about what was going on with her family, and her oldest daughter who's gotten married, and my wife kind of discipled her when she was younger, we catch up about that, and her son, and what was going on, and he would ask about our kids, and after dinner, we'd go out in the backyard and play catch with our kids, with a major league baseball player, how cool is that, right, really cool, like, and so listen, when I think about eating, what do I think about? relationship, right? Let's go back to Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody invites me in, what am I going to do? I'm going to come on and give you a whole bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations, and you're going to do all this stuff, and like, and like, it's like God becomes the cosmic killjoy, right? That's what we think when we receive Christ in our life. No, the God of the universe in Christ by the power of the Spirit comes in, and he has dinner with you. And you catch up, and he loves you. He wants to know what's stressing you out, and he wants to know what's exciting you, and he wants to know your passions. He wants to know about your future. He eats with us because the God of the universe cares for you. You guys seem kind of bored with that. All right, let me, let me say this again. All right, let me back up a minute. You guys aren't connecting. I know I'm not Pastor Andrew. He's way smarter than me and way more articulate than me. But here, let me say it this way. All right, let me, let me say it this way. The creator God of the universe wants to come in and have a meal with you. Anybody? 
Amen, right? It's amazing. He cares for us. Draw near to God. And guess what? He draws near to you. This God that we worship is not distant. He cares about everything that you're worried about. First Peter, cast all your cares on me because I care about you. Amen? All right, so that's letter B. Letter C, the gospel, humility. Cleansed from sin, James says. James 4, verse 8, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, you read this, and you're like, man, I'm so glad I came to church this morning, right? Like, it's so depressing. But here's what James is reminding us, right? Do you ever get the feeling when you read the Bible that God takes sin way more seriously than we do? Anybody? Like, like we make comedy movies. Even as Christians sometimes, I think we watch comedies of what God calls sin. And sin is destructive. And sin has a wage, according to the scriptures. The wage of sin is what? It's death, right? And we laugh at it on sitcoms. And, 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 and now we live in a culture that we pass laws that protect what God calls sin. And we tell jokes about what God calls sin. And, and at Christians, sometimes, I think we skirt around, like, you know, sometimes, you know, when I was in student ministry, and we probably still do this, you know, students would ask, hey, I'm going out on a date, and like, like how far is too far on a date physically, right? And I always say, man, we're asking the wrong question. That's like, how close can I get to sin and it still not be sin? And James tells us, man, to, if we're going to be serious about drawing near to God, then we need to humble ourselves. And when the Bible calls it sin, man, we need to be gloomy and we need to mourn and we need to weep over our sin. Listen, it needs to start with Christians. Amen? I'm not talking about the them out there. And I don't have, I have almost zero hope that the midterm elections are going to change our culture. And I have almost zero hope that the 2024 elections are going to change our culture. You want to know where my hope lies? My hope lies that there will be revival in our culture, starting with Christians that say, man, if I'm going to be serious about sin, I'm going to mourn and weep, and I'm going to pray that the gospel spreads and that hearts change. Listen, I'm excited about Roe v. Wade, and I'm excited that we've rejected the lives of babies, but Roe v. Wade doesn't change a hearts only the gospel changed hearts amen church and so it starts with me pastor sean looking in the mirror and i need to stop and you as followers of jesus we need to stop coddling sin amen and we need to take it serious and we need to beg god say god give us clean hands and purify our hearts and help us not to be double-minded help us oh god have mercy on us to walk in holiness and righteousness and as we just sang as hunter did an incredible job we just sang like god we just want to worship you and you alone and incredibly when we worship and honor the lord and we stop acting like our own gods who get to make up our own rules and we and stop deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong and we humble ourselves under god's word and god's will and god's ways letter d when we do that God exalts the humble. That's what humility is. God, it's your word, it's your will, it's your ways. I'm going to adjust my life to what you say. I'm going to receive the gospel of Jesus. And then, verse 10, 
James says, God, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. In due time, God will exalt you. You don't have to worry about exalting yourself. I want to say that again. You do not have to worry about exalting yourself in whatever God has called you to do on Monday. In your workplace, in your home place, in your educational place, you humble yourself, you do it God's will by God's ways, and guess what? God will expand your influence in any way he wants to, whenever he wants to. He may never do it. Your, in, your influence is totally up to God. I love the story of Joseph for this, right? Joseph gets sold into Potiphar's house. What happens? His influence expands, right? He becomes in charge of Potiphar's house. Until the wife lies, he ends up in jail. What happens in jail? His influence expands. He just does what God what God put his hand to, right? And his influence expands, but it's totally up to God that his influence expands. Influence is a God thing. Your job is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in his time, he will exalt you. Amen, church? All right, the next, next couple will go very quickly. Here we go. Number two, we are to humble ourselves in the way we use our tongue. We're to humble ourselves in the way we use our tongue. James chapter 4, verse 11 James goes on, he says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers, but the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You want to know what James, I think James is saying here, a lot of, that's a lot of words, I think he's saying this, ready? Kindness to others reflects our humility. The way we use our tongue as Christians should be kind. We, we, we live in a day and age. I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, one of the reasons I, th- I think as I'm getting older and, and uh, you got to be probably my age or older to remember a day when there was no internet, right? I actually, a lot of times people say, how'd you become the pastor of Coastal? I actually found the job online. I'm probably one of the first ones to find it. This was before Indeed, right? You could actually find, so in the early 2000s, right? But I remember a day where there was no social media, and I actually think in some ways there was more unity in our culture because with social media, everybody gets to share their opinion about everything all the time. And I think by doing that, we've become more divided. Like, oh, I didn't know that's what my neighbor thought. I didn't know what my coworker thought. Like, and we just, it's just like, and there's a part of me that's like, like, who cares? Why do you have to share your opinion with, about everything? Amen. Like, like, let's just be a people that, that are kinder. You know, what does James say earlier in, the, in, uh, in a couple weeks ago? It's be slow to speak, right? Be slow to share your opinion. Be sure that when you are speaking, that, that what you're speaking about is clearly backed by the word of God. Where the word of God is clear, we can and should be clear. Where the word of God is less clear or even silent, we should think about maybe being silent. We don't always have to have a strong opinion about everything. And by the way, it's not that we never judge, okay? And, I, and when we covered this in James chapter 1, I think at Yorktown, I talked about, I gave a kind of a biblical worldview. And I'm not going to do that here for time's sake, but I, we could talk about it afterwards if you want to talk. But there's a biblical world for, for how, as Christians, we are to judge. The Bible doesn't say we never judge but we are to judge on biblical parameters and whatever judgment we use for others, we can and should expect to be used on ourselves, amen? And so we use the same judgment, but I do think that we need to be kind. And Christians oftentimes, man, we are just not kind. And I would say let's err on the side of kindness. Let her be here. I think that, that James is calling us to consider that oftentimes it's better that we shut up 
and do the works of righteousness, right? So I just talked about being kind, and then I used the word shut up, okay? So um, I think James is warning the church that, that sometimes we're too busy judging and not quick enough to actually do the works of the law. That's what he's saying. Stop judging all the time. Stop speaking all the time and start doing, okay? So here's how I would say it, right? This is the Sean Brown version, the unkind Sean Brown version, okay? Shut up and serve, amen? Shut up and love. Shut up and give. Shut up and sacrifice your time. Shut up and sacrifice your talent. Shut up and sacrifice your treasure. Like, let's do the works of the law. And by doing what God has commanded us, maybe we will begin to show love to the world and earn the right to speak. Wouldn't that be something, church? Amen? Wouldn't that be something? And then I think that James says, and then you can relax, church, and let God be the judge. We can relax and let God be the judge. Sometimes being the judge, when we feel the need to be the judge of our culture all the time, or the judge of people around us, it's really just an exaggerated view of ourselves. Man, I'm so important that I need to make sure that they know from me. You want to hear something really, really fascinating? I bet you maybe never really thought about this. Did you know that the Bible teaches that no one actually gets away with it? Do you think about that? Like no one, whatever injustice has been opposed on you by someone or by the culture or whatever, did you know that no one actually gets away with it? Either every single person becomes a believer, a Christian, and Jesus bore all of their injustices for them, or... Every single person one day will stand before God and give an account of their lives, and God will appropriately assign judgment and justice that will be repaid for all eternity. Nobody actually gets away with it. What does is, what is Paul say in Romans 12? He says, we're quoting for God, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not up to us to get vengeance. God will ultimately take care of justice for everyone that walks the earth. So when you think about a personal wound where someone has hurt you, did you know that that person will not get away with it? You can turn it over to God and he will take care of justice. Isn't that great news? And how will he take care of justice? Either they receive Christ and Christ bore God's wrath for them or he will, they, or every person will bear God's wrath who who have rejected the gospel of Jesus and bear God's wrath for all eternity, no one gets away with it. Good news, amen? All right, number three, third thing about humility, very practical. I think James is telling us to be humble in our planning or in our plans. And it's really, really easy to make plans as if God owes us our plans. James chapter four, verse 13, James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I want to encourage you with this, letter A, first of all. 
We as Christians should be submitting our plans to the Lord. All of our plans. And, and some of that is a prayer posture, right? Like how, how much are you praying over your plans? Hey God, you know, it's funny. I was driving down here today and I was listening to my audio Bible and I was listening to the prayer of Jabez. And so how many of you old people remember the very famous book, The Prayer of Jabez? You got to be my age or older probably, right? This is this little prayer buried in 1 Corinthians 7 by a guy named Jabez. And this guy wrote a book and he made all kinds of money with it. So I wish I had discovered it for myself. But, but the prayer is very like, hey, God, just bless me. I mean, Jabez goes so far as to say, like, you know, I don't want to go through all the hardships of life. If you could expand my territory and bless me and do all this stuff. And, and, and the scripture says that God heard his prayer and granted his prayer, which is amazing, right? Now, does that mean God does it every time? I don't think so, but, but still, the prayer of Jabez, right? And I was thinking, how many times do I go before God and submit my plans to the Lord? Hey, God, I'm thinking about the business deal. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about changing a ministry. I'm thinking about volunteering for a ministry. I'm thinking about doing this at work. I'm thinking about doing this with my finances. I'm thinking about doing this with my children. And we just take our plans and we say, man, let's submit them to the Lord because ultimately he's in charge. And James says, the reason you should do this letter B is to remember your brevity, right? Remember that like you're a mist. I, I was supposed to uh, have in my notes, I totally dropped the ball. I was supposed to bring, I meant to bring a match, but let's just imagine I had a match, right? And I lit it and blew it out. And that smoke, how long would that smoke last? Just a few seconds, right? And it would dissipate. And James says, that's your life. How many of y'all came to church this morning thinking you were going to be encouraged? Okay. Listen, God has eternal life for you, but your life here on the planet, it's a mist, one of the things I think that we do more as pastors than the average, probably, uh, employment is we do a lot of funerals. And, and I actually love to do a funeral. I think it's very humbling to put the put words around a, a person's life. I, I'm, I'm humbled to be a part of a funeral. I love to share the gospel at a funeral and remind people how they can know that they're going to see their loved one again, especially if they're followers of Jesus. I find funerals to be... Just a very, very humbling part of our ministry. But one of the things that it does that I think that we as pastors do on a regular that the rest of the culture doesn't always do is just as you're doing these funerals, you're reminded of your brevity, right? And I, and I would encourage you, if you're a young person, it's one of the things I think our culture has pivoted from. We don't, we don't go to funerals and, you know, we don't touch death. I think, you know, 150 years ago when a loved one died, they died in your house, right? And you, you were there with them as they're breathing their last and you just got this constant reminder of your brevity. I would encourage you, man, when there's a member here at the Chesapeake, Coastal Chesapeake campus that passes, like as a member, show up and celebrate their life and, and remind your heart of your brevity. Like that's a good thing. The Bible says to number your days and, and, and remember, man, my life is short. And, and the first thing it is, is, is it reminds you to submit your plans to the Lord. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, let me encourage you, man, there is no promise that you will have tomorrow for any of us, like receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today so that you may know that you have the hope of eternal life because that is the ultimate goal of the gospel of Jesus, right? And, and, and if you're a Christian, like who are you investing in? What are you using your time, talent, and treasure for that will last for all eternity? Let her see, uh, you know, the heart, our heart posture should reflect in our lives phrase, if the Lord wills. James says, verse 15, he says, he says, we should be saying, 
if the Lord wills. Now, does that mean that every time we're in a planning meeting, we finish the meeting with, you know, if the Lord wills? I don't think it's like this thing we have to say, though it may not be bad to say on the regular, but I think it's more of a mindset and a worldview. And I love that James says, if the Lord wills, because what does that tell us, by the way? It tells us that the world that we lived in, that we live in, is not a closed system. God does intervene and do things, amen? Like he can do things good, he can help, you know, like intervene in our prayers, he can save souls, he can answer our prayers for the planning that we're hoping to do, for the good of the gospel, for to use our lives in a particular manner. Like it's not a closed system, God is involved. Just like we talk about, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Our God is involved with us. I always lean into Psalm 127. That's probably one of my favorite verses when I'm planning. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house. Anybody know what the psalm says next? We labor in what? In vain, right? Like, if God, if you're not involved in what we're doing, like, it's not going to get accomplished anyway. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your strength. And so humility, letter D, demands that we submit all of our plans to the Lord. And that's what James says in in James 4, 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. In other words, we cannot arrogantly proclaim, we're going to do this, we're not going to do this, but it's a submission to the will of the Lord and say, Lord, this is what we're planning, but we're not going to be so arrogant as to think you are not involved in our life and in our future planning. And so ultimately, all that we're hoping to do, we submit to you. And then finally, point number four, James chapter four, verse 17 James finishes this section by saying, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. And so point number four I think is really, really simple. And by the way, this reminds us that there is a sin of omission. I think sometimes we think about their sins of, well, you know, I didn't do this and I didn't do this. But there are things that as Christians we should be doing and when we don't do them... If we know it's the right thing to do and we're not doing it, there's the sin of omission. And so number four, we're to humble ourselves in our, our obedience to God's word. So knowing God's word is not the same as doing God's word, right? We have to know it, yes, there is a head knowledge piece, but there's also a doing. And humility is knowing the word and then adjusting our lives to do it. Amen? As an act of worship to the Lord. And so, and so we can sin, not just in the things that we do, but neglecting to do what God has made plain to us. And so uh, I'm going to finish with a, just a quick story of a story that you know, the, the Good Samaritan. And if you're on the worship team, you guys can come on up. And we're going to close with saying in just a moment here. Um, there's two times in Luke where Jesus gets approached and a person says, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Um, I want you to imagine that after the service, you've brought a friend. They haven't, they've maybe never been to church. You've brought this friend and they come up to you and they say, hey, I want to know how to become a Christian. And so after the service, you bring this friend of yours, it's just, you've been working on, you've been serving, loving the community, you bring them up front to Pastor Andrew, and they say, All right, my friend wants to be a Christian, and Andrew looks at your friend and says, I just need you to keep the law. Keep the law, 
and if you do those things, you should be fine. How many of you would be okay with that as a gospel presentation, right? Jesus does that twice in the gospel of Luke. It's pretty fascinating. He'll look at, so in, in Luke chapter 10, this lawyer comes up and says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus says, what's the law? And he says, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, do those things and you should be fine. That's what Jesus says, right? And then the lawyer who knows, I probably haven't kept the law. And he does it, by the way, with the rich young ruler. He does the same, has the same conversation with the rich young ruler, right? And so, and what is Jesus doing by quoting the law, by the way? He's trying to help, see, help the person see your heart, you're not perfect. Only the perfect get to heaven. You need the credited perfection of Jesus gifted to you by grace through faith, okay? That's what Jesus is doing. So let me give you that, okay? So in Luke chapter 10, the, the lawyer says, I've done all these things. I've done all these things. I've loved my neighbor. And then, but he knew maybe I hadn't done all the loving of my neighbor exactly. And so the Bible says, wishing to justify himself, the lawyer looks at Jesus and says, what? Anybody know? What's the question he asks? Who's my neighbor? Right? Everybody know that story? Good Samaritan. And Jesus tells a story. He says, I got a story for you. There's this, there's this guy. He's on a long journey. He falls among the thieves. He gets robbed. He gets beaten almost to death. He's left for dead. And the first guy that comes by is a pastor. Pastor Sean comes walking by. He sees a person in need. He's like, man, I'm too busy. I've got planning meetings to get to. He walks around the guy that's beaten, and he goes on his, on his way. The second person that comes by is a Levite. A Levite is a scholar. Okay, so that's Pastor Andrew's degree. Here comes the scholar, right? And he's too busy because he's got a meeting with Pastor Sean. He's already late. The tunnel traffic's backed up. So he walks around. And the next person that comes by is a Samaritan. Now, no one likes a Samaritan, so we'll call that Jerry Fluke. And so Jerry Fluke just... <laughs> Just kidding, Jerry, we love you, all right? And so Jerry Flew comes walking by, but he's kind. Unlike Pastor Sean and Pastor Andrew, he's super kind, and he takes care of them, right? And he bandages them up, and he puts them in a hotel, and he tells the hotel owner, like, as long as he needs to say, here's enough money to cover a couple weeks, and if he needs any more, when I come back, I'll make sure he's taken care of. And so Jesus looks at the lawyer. He said, which one was his neighbor? It's obvious, right? Which one was his neighbor? He's the one that took care of him. Okay? And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to conclude, and I've been using James at the Yorktown campus as kind of a mirror to say, and I think that's, what, that's why we've t- entitled this, this series Authentic. We look at the mirror of James and say, is my, what I say I believe about Jesus and the word of God, is it being lived out day to day? Am I being authentic in what I say that I believe? That I'm not just using my words, but my actions are, taking, are catching up, right? And so James says to us, if we're humble, we're actually doing what God's word says. Now I'm going to steal Pastor Andrew's thunder because he says this, I think, just about every week, right? He comes up here at the end of worship and he says, you've done what? Come to church, now do what? Go be the church, right? We want to go be the church. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to take just a silent moment before we close with singing, and we're going to pray a prayer. Don't pray this prayer unless you want to be honest to it and you want to be dangerous. But as I was thinking this week, I was like, you know what, Lord? I want to be the good Samaritan this week. And here's what I mean by that. I, wanna, I, I want to live my life in such a way that I have eyes open to someone in need, and I want it to cost me something. I want it to cost me some of my time, some of my talent, and some of my treasure. Because I want to be the hands and feet of Christ. So 
as I go through my life, God, this week, I want you to give me somebody that I can serve that I normally wouldn't serve. How about that? How many people are here this morning? I don't know. Let's say there's 150 adults here this morning. If all of us are serious and say, God, use me this week, we are going to get to make a difference in the lives of 150 people in our community this week. How cool would that be? Anybody? That'd be cool. So let's do this. Let's bow our heads, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I only want you to pray it if you're dangerous and say, God, I'm ready to be and willing to be obedient to what you've called me to do. So Heavenly Father, this morning we've looked at your word. And you've called us to a heart posture of humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And one of the things that James has taught us is if we've humbled ourselves under your word and we know something, yet don't do it, to us it is sin. you've called us, oh God, yes, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you've also called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus has made it plain, who is my neighbor? It's, it's a person in need. So God, this week as we leave here, we don't just want to come to church this week. We want to be the church. So God, we're going to ask boldly and specifically you would help us this week to live with our eyes open. God, we want you to, by the power of our eyes being open, the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead us to someone in need. That we can actually meet that need in a way that costs us something. Maybe a little bit of our time on the way home. Or maybe some of our ability. You've given us the ability to help through service opportunities cost us a financial resource to bless somebody financially, but God, we want to be used this week to be the hands and feet of Christ. Because to them who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to them it is sin, God. We want to be your hands and feet so that we might have the opportunity to exalt the name and fame of Jesus Christ. We don't just want to do, but we want to do with the hope of, hey, we want to introduce you to the one that's changed our lives. And his name is Jesus. And so we boldly ask this week, give us that person that we can indeed minister to very practically because we want our faith in Jesus to be authentic. And it's in Jesus' most precious name I pray. Do me a favor, let's stand and sing and let's worship the Lord together.